Uh, okay, we'll make a start. Um, so, as the evidence and implications and hype over the Higgs particle continues to mount, what with the, uh, the God particle label and all, I can think of no better person to explain what it all means than our speaker tonight, Sean Carroll. Um, Sean's based at Caltech, California Institute of Technology, but he's a frequent outreacher and does a lot of traveling. He's a, a consultant for TV programs and appears on a lot of TV programs. And in fact, I discovered today, if you do a search on Google, you can see that he did an interview with John Barrowman from Torchwood on the Higgs. So he's, he's got very good nerdy credentials here. Um, so Sean also blogs and tweets fairly prolifically. He has a blog at uh, preposterousuniverse.com, which is a lot of fun. And you'll see in this that he has a, an unusual ability to boil very complex ideas down to clear and usually amusing examples. You can see this in his great courses videos that he has. He has uh, one on dark energy and one on the mysteries of time, which I can recommend to you. And he's also written a pair of popular books, uh, one on the direction of time called From Eternity to Here, and the other is a book which has just appeared called The Particle at the End of the Universe, which you'll be hearing a bit about this evening, and which you can buy uh, at a stall just outside there and get the copy signed um, just after this talk. Um, so in any case, I'm sure you'll leave this auditorium much better, much wiser about the Higgs boson and able to separate the hyperbole from the facts. Now before I introduce Sean, there's just a bit of uh, administrivia. There's a lecture followed by a question period. And during the questions, if you have a question to ask, you have to speak into the microphone, especially tonight since it's being filmed by uh, ABC's Big Ideas. Okay, so if you join me in introducing Sean. Thanks, Dean, and thanks everyone for uh, coming tonight. Thanks to uh, University of Sydney for hosting, and also thanks to my ex-office mate, Brian Schmidt. I should have had a picture of Brian here, but uh, I gave a similar talk just last night in Canberra. Brian, of course, is a Nobel Prize winning astronomer. He was my office mate in graduate school, and he likes making bets with me and losing them. So he bet me that we wouldn't find the Higgs boson, and if, if I won, if we did find the Higgs boson, then he would fly me to Australia uh, business class, and I would get to give some talks. So here I am giving the talks, and I, I appreciate that. Uh, he, he conceded very willingly. And um, so the, the theme of this talk comes from this event, July 4th, just last year. I was fortunate enough to be in Geneva, Switzerland, at CERN, the European Particle Accelerator Facility, uh, home of the Large Hadron Collider, this giant particle accelerator. And what was going on on July 4th? Well, there was a vibe that was uh, pretty exciting. There were people camped out overnight uh, as if there was going to be a Lady Gaga concert uh, the next day, except there were more than an average number of laptops uh, among the people who were camping out. But there was no concert the next day. Instead, there were PowerPoint presentations. Two talks by Fabiola Giannotti and Joe Incandela announcing, of course, the discovery of a new particle, the Higgs boson. It was, the point is, it was a big deal. People were very excited. The 20-something-year-old physicists were camping out overnight. The 80-something-year-old physicists who had invented the idea of the Higgs boson were in the audience and became rather emotional afterward. They were, something they were waiting for for almost half of a century had finally uh, been found. And the question that the person who is not an expert physicist should and does ask is, what is the big deal? 
Why is this particular particle so important? We found particles before. I don't remember this much excitement, you know, front page news and so forth. And we physicists have tried very hard to explain why the Higgs boson is a big deal. And frankly, we don't do a very good job. Uh, it has led us to, uh, let's just say, a few missteps along the way in terms of Higgs boson public relations. So we will <laughs> not be using certain uh, uh, phrases in this talk. We're going to try to do better. So why is it so hard to get across why the Higgs boson is so important? I blame this guy. So Democritus is the first theoretical particle physicist. He was certainly a theoretical particle physicist, not an experimentalist. But the ancient Greeks came up with the idea, which is really radical when you think about it, that all the stuff of which the universe is made, the air, the fire, the, the table in front of us, you and me, this, these are not individually totally different substances. These are different rearrangements of a small number of fundamental objects, fundamental constituents, which Democritus and his friends called atoms. Uh, back in the 19th century, modern scientists jumped the gun. They thought that they had figured out what atoms were, and those were in the periodic table. But what Democritus really had in mind are the elementary particles. Whatever those turn out to be, we think we have uh, a collection of them, but there could be even more fundamental particles we haven't yet discovered. The basic idea is that a small number of building blocks arranged in different combinations make everything you, say, you see around you. So we think about particle physics right here in the book. The, the title is The Particle at the End of the Universe, and my claim is going to be that's the wrong way to think about the fundamental nature of reality, even though I will still keep using the vocabulary. I should point out, of course, this is not what Democritus looked like. This is the, we have no paintings or photographs of Democritus. He lived 2,500 years ago. We have no idea what he looked like. What we have is a nickname that was passed down through the ages. He was known as the Laughing Philosopher. And what this meant was that in the Renaissance, when you could sell your paintings for more money if they were of famous Greek philosophers rather than self-portraits, uh, if you were Rembrandt, you would paint a portrait of yourself laughing and label it Democritus. And then you could sell it uh, at Sotheby's for... Uh, so this is uh, actually Rembrandt, but he called it Democritus. Okay. So the, the idea is that thinking of the world in terms of particles is fine for certain purposes, but it makes it hard to explain why the Higgs boson is such a big deal. So instead of taking our cue from Democritus, we will take our cue from these modern-day philosophers, the insane clown posse. I don't know if the insane clown posse have really penetrated uh, the Southern Hemisphere very well, but these are two young gentlemen. This is Violent J, and that's Shaggy 2 Dope. These are not the names that their mothers gave them when they were born, but they're recording artists. They are hip-hop musicians. They have quite the following of people who dress up in the clown makeup, and they sing about basically having a good time. That's the underlying theme of their songs. But a couple years ago, they came out with a song with a very different theme, and it was very controversial in different circles. The song was called Miracles. And one circle in which it was controversial was the circle of scientists, because here goes one of the verses in uh, this, this tune. I see miracles all around me. Stop and look. It's all astounding. Water, air, fire, and dirt. Gosh darn magnets. How do they work? So we're being recorded here. So you can Google what that word really was. It was, it was not gosh darn. Uh, so you can see why scientists would be upset by this. Because the scientists are, well, it's not just because they rhymed dirt with work. It's because 
magnets are pretty much figured out. Magnets are in our wheelhouse, scientifically speaking. We do know how magnets work. But what I want to do is stand up for the underlying impetus that gave rise to this slightly misguided verse of poetry. Namely, it is astounding how magnets work. And again, because our scientific understanding is good enough, we sometimes fail to step back and realize you know, just how astounding it is. Think of what a magnet does. What do magnets do? They stick to refrigerators. That's what magnets do. But plenty of things stick to refrigerators. A piece of tape can stick to a refrigerator. The difference is the piece of tape, in order to stick it to the refrigerator, it has to touch the refrigerator and then it can adhere. But a magnet, if you think about holding a magnet, it begins to tug, it begins to pull before it touches the refrigerator. How does it know that there's a refrigerator nearby that it is going to pull on? The answer is that there's more to life than the magnet itself. There are invisible things all around us that are communicating uh, in important ways. And ultimately, those things called quantum fields are going to help us understand the Higgs boson. So it's very nice of the University of Sydney to invite me here to give you this six-hour lecture on the notion of quantum field theory and how it works. So I appreciate that. So let's go back to another famous thinker. This is Sir Isaac Newton, who you may have heard of. He invented gravity. Right? He didn't actually invent gravity. They knew about gravity before. But what, I, what, what Newton did was explain that gravity is universal, that the gravity that explains why apple, apples fall from trees is the same gravity that explains why the planets move in the orbits that they do. And the single underlying idea is that if you have some object like the Earth and you have other objects that are being pulled by gravity, there's an inverse square law for the force due to gravity. That is to say, the force due to gravity fades away as one over the distance to that object quantity squared. So if you're very close by, you feel a big force. If you're further away, you feel a smaller force. And this idea fits the data extraordinarily well. It, we can do even better these days, because Einstein's general theory of relativity superseded Newtonian gravity. But Newtonian gravity is good enough to fly to the moon. It's very, very accurate. However, it's disturbing. It's conceptually uh, troubling. Newtonian gravity, when Newton proposed it, is much like quantum mechanics today. We have a way of fitting the data. We have this incredibly successful theory. But we don't think that we truly understand what is going on. And for Newton, the problem was this action at a distance. You have the Earth here. You have these objects far away. How do they know how strongly to be pulled by gravity? Newton himself said, this truly doesn't make sense. We're going to need to do better. So we can do better. And this guy, the French mathematician and physicist Pierre-Simon Laplace, figured out how to do better. He invented a theory of gravity which is mathematically equivalent to Newton's. There's no new predictions. You don't test whether Laplacian gravity is right or Newtonian gravity is right. But it makes us feel better, Laplace's formulation of gravity, because he says that there's not action at a distance. There's something called the gravitational field that pervades all of space. Technically speaking, the gravitational potential field is just a number. And this, this curve here represents what that number is as a function of how far you are away from the Earth. So a field is just a quantity that takes on a value at every point in the universe. It's not like a particle that is here and not there. The fields are everywhere, but they have different values. So you make this plot. The field is low down here near the Earth, and then it rises up. And then Laplace says that 
the force due to gravity is just the slope of this field. It's just how rapidly the field values are changing. So there is no spooky behavior at a distance. You have the Earth pushing down the field, like you pushing down a rubber sheet, and then the field here affects the field there, which affects the field there, which affects the field there, and you get a smooth equation that tells you how the field varies throughout the universe. And so there's uh, something that knows what is going on at every point in space, even if you can't see it. And this idea that empty space is full of these invisible fields is an idea that has stayed with us. In fact, the short version is that if you want to know what the world is made of at the deep fundamental level, it is not made of particles. It is made of fields. If you've had a little bit of education as a physicist, you've been faced with this question, is light or, or electrons particles or waves? But you probably weren't ever told the answer. The answer is waves. It's not made of particles. It, a wave is just a fluctuation in a field, a variation from point to point. A magnet, for example, has this magnetic field pervading the space around it. You can't see it, but we put iron filings next to it, and the iron filings are affected by the magnetic field, and you can trace out those lines of force caused by the magnet. So the question you should now be asking is, how is it possibly true that the world is truly made of nothing but fields if we keep talking about particles. Where do the particles come from? How do the particles relate to the fields? And that is given to us by quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics, this very, very profound idea from the early 20th century, uh, is very hard for us to understand because it is conceptually different from all the other theories of physics we had before. And the major conceptual difference is that in quantum mechanics, what you see is very, very different than what there is. In Newtonian mechanics, you have the moon going around the Earth. The moon has a position, it has a velocity, and you can observe those positions and velocities as well as you like. And quantum mechanics says no, that what the world is made of is one thing, but then what you see when you look at it may be something very, very different. So, in particular, the world is made of fields, fields pervading space, not just the electromagnetic field and the gravitational field, but electrons, quarks, neutrinos, all of these things that we think of as particles are actually vibrations in fields. There's an electron field, there's a neutrino field, an up quark field, etc. So you have a field that has a value at every point in space, and where it's fluctuating a little bit, you look at it and you see that as a particle. So, for example, the light that you're seeing that shows you things here are the light is just an electromagnetic wave. You've heard that. But if you look at that electromagnetic wave closely enough, it resolves into individual particles called photons. The trick is, the conceptual trick, is that it's not actually made of photons. It really is a wave. But your ability to detect it only comes in discrete packets called photons. So if you are a frog, this is the kind of thought experiment physicists like to do. Imagine you are a frog. Imagine your friend, also a frog, is carrying a lantern and walking away from you. So as a human being, a lantern moving away from you gets dimmer and dimmer. Imagine it's a dark night outside. The lantern just gets dimmer and dimmer until you can't see it anymore. But this example given by David Deutsch in his book, The Fabric of Reality, he points out that frogs have more sensitive eyeballs than we human beings do. And if a frog sees his friend the frog move away, the lantern gets dimmer and dimmer, but only up to a point. After that point, it stops getting dimmer, but it starts flickering. 
It is on, and then it's off, and then it's on, and then it's off. And if the lantern is very far away, you just see darkness almost all the time, but with an occasional flash of light in your eye. That is because your eye is detecting individual photons, individual particles of light. What is arriving at your eye is a wave, an electromagnetic wave, but quantum mechanics is, says that what you see when you look at it closely enough are particles. So for almost all everyday purposes, it's fine to talk about particles. It's fine to talk about the atoms that make up this table, the electrons, the protons, the quarks, and so forth. But for some purposes, you have to admit that really when we're talking about those particles, there are underlying waves and the particles are just what we see when we look at them. So I will from now on talk about particles, but when we get to thinking about what the Higgs boson is doing, we're going to have to admit that it's a field underlying that particle. So here is particle physics as it, we thought of it in 1935. You could have forgiven a 1930s era particle physicist for thinking that we were almost finished. They had a model of matter that fit the data very, very well. So they knew about three kinds of particles. There was the electron, and the electron orbits around the nucleus of an atom. And inside the nucleus, there were two kinds of particles, protons and neutrons. So three particles, electrons, protons, and neutrons, and three forces of nature. There was the electromagnetic force. Back in the 19th century, we had unified electricity and magnetism. And electromagnetism is what keeps the electron bound to the proton. There's the nuclear force that keeps the protons and neutrons bound to each other in the nucleus. Then there's gravity, and gravity just pulls everything close to everything else. Now, of course, the physicists didn't stop. It was uh, my predecessor at Caltech, Carl Anderson, who broke this very nice model by discovering the muon. And I.I. Uh, I. Robbie very famously said, who ordered that? Why do we need these other things? But these days, we know that there are a, there's a very similar picture. The picture of the atoms, the protons and neutrons, it's incomplete, but it didn't go away. It just got improved a little bit. So we know that if you dig inside the proton and the neutron, they're not themselves elementary particles. They are made of smaller particles called quarks. There is an up quark and a down quark, and a proton is two ups and a down. A neutron is two downs and an up. And then there's a fourth kind of particle called the neutrino. The neutrino interacts with the other particles with a new force called the weak nuclear force. So what we thought of as one nuclear force split into two, the strong force and the weak force. The weak force is very weak. You don't need to understand it to get through your everyday life, but it does help the sun shine. When two protons come together inside the sun and get, one of them gets converted into a neutron, that's the weak nuclear force at work, you spit out a neutrino in the process. So that's not much more complicated. Instead of three particles and three forces, we have four particles and four forces. There is the slight complication that these matter particles, the electron, the neutrino, the up quark, and the down quark, form one family of particles. Those four particles are a family. And there's two more families. Nobody has any idea why. There's the muon, which is a heavier version of the electron, the tau, that is a heavier version of that, and every one of these particles has two heavier versions of themselves, no idea why. So if you want the summary of all this in one uh, elegant picture, here is the flowchart. <laughs> I actually had to make the flowchart smaller than I wanted uh, for purposes of book publishing, but this flowchart tells you what particle you are. We're not going to go through all the details. 
there are basically two kinds of particles. There are the fermions. These are the matter particles. These are things that you and I and tables and planets are made of. The quarks that are inside the protons and neutrons and the leptons that fly around by themselves. And then there are the bosons. These are the particles that can pile on top of each other to make force fields. So you get the weak force, you get gravity, you get the strong force, you get electromagnetism. And then way up by itself in a different color, there's one more particle called the Higgs boson. So your first hint as to why the Higgs boson is so interesting is that it is a different kind of particle than any of the other particles that we had detected before. And the reason why, we'll go back to its, no, its, its nature as a field. So why did we come up with the idea of the Higgs boson back in 1964? What was wrong with just saying, all right, we have these different forces, we have these different matter particles, and we're done? The problem was, back in the 1950s and 60s, we were trying to understand those nuclear forces. Remember, you have gravity and electromagnetism, and they kind of made sense to us. And the reason why they made sense is they are long-range forces. Think again of this lantern that is moving away from you. How dim does it get as it moves away from you? Surprisingly, at first, until you figure it out, the, the formula for the brightness of the lantern is also an inverse square law. Just like the formula for Newtonian gravity, the strength of gravity and the brightness of a lantern obey the same mathematical relationship. Why is that? The answer is because space has three dimensions. And that should not be perfectly obvious to you, but if you think about some object, think about either gravity or electricity, the electric field or whatever, you have lines of force that stretch out from that object, just like the lines of the light rays stretching out from your lantern. And the lines of force don't disappear. What they do is they get dilute. Here, nearby the object, they're very closely packed, and that means the force is strong. Far away, they're diluted, they're further away from each other, and therefore the force is weaker. How weaker is it? Well, if you sort of draw a sphere at some fixed radius, a sphere has an area that goes like the distance squared. The reason why the strength of the force goes down as the distance squared is because the area over which the lines of force are diluted goes up as the distance squared. So that's a very nice, elegant little picture that connects the behavior of forces to the geometry of space, but it only works for electromagnetism and gravity. For the nuclear forces, for the strong and weak nuclear forces, they don't obey an inverse square law. That's why we don't feel them in our everyday lives. They only stretch over very, very short distances. So you might say, well, this is your job, theoretical physicist. Let's figure out why these forces are so short range. And that was the challenge taken up in the 1950s. And it was really hard. <laughs> it turns out that this is sort of mathematically almost forced on you by the nature of these theories, that you should get an inverse square law. It took a lot of genius, and it has been uh, the, the subject of multiple Nobel Prizes to figure out why the strong and weak nuclear force only stretch over a short range. And it turns out, if you want to understand how nature works, if you want to predict ahead of time how nature works, the principle you should have in your mind is, what would make the lives of physics graduate students the most complicated it could be? So in the case of the nuclear forces, the answer as to why they are short range is utterly different for the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force. For the strong nuclear force, there's something called confinement. There are lines of force. There are particles called gluons that stretch out from the quarks and so forth. But the gluons interact with each other. 
And what that means is the lines of force become all tangled up with each other. And the ultimate effect of that is like your lantern has a shutter around it that is holding in all the light. If your head is inside the shutter, the lantern looks very bright. You go outside, it, you don't see it at all. That's what the structure of a proton is like. If your head is inside the proton, the strong nuclear force is very, very strong. If you're far away, you don't feel the strong nuclear force at all. And what that is kind of like is all these lines of force interacting with each other so that none of them leak out to infinity. This is called confinement. There's a whole bunch of uh, mathematical, beautiful mathematics behind understanding it. And there's a prize offered of a million dollars if you understand it perfectly, because no one does quite yet. In the case of the weak nuclear force, utterly different, like I said. Imagine that the lantern that is moving away from you is surrounded by fog. Imagine it's a foggy night. Okay? Then the lantern fades away for a little while, but pretty soon it fades away completely because the light that is coming from the lantern is absorbed by the fog between you and the lantern. So in this case, the lines of force truly do end. Effectively, the lines of force just get absorbed by this medium around them. And the idea that physicists proposed in the early 1960s is that the weak nuclear force is absorbed by a field that pervades empty space. This is kind of a big idea, so you can imagine that people laughed at them, and they did. They were ridiculed for this idea. Uh, I remember very, very well my old professor of quantum field theory telling us the story of how he looked forward to the seminar by this guy named Peter Higgs and how he and his students were going to attack him and show that he was wrong. Didn't work that way, as it turns out. But uh, the proposal is that empty space itself is full of the quantum field theory equivalent of fog. That is to say, empty space itself has a new kind of field everywhere around us. There's an invisible energy field pervading the universe that eats up the lines of force, making the weak interaction short range. It is a very, very dramatic idea. Obviously, if it were right, it would have big consequences. It was a sufficiently difficult idea that no one person came up with it. Peter Higgs is one of the people who came up with it, and he had the coolest sounding last name, so his name gets attached to what we call the Higgs mechanism and the Higgs boson and the Higgs field. But Phil Anderson, Francois Anglaire, Robert Brout, Tom Kibble, Gerald Guralnik, Richard Hagen all came up with the idea independently. Glashow, Salam, and Weinberg put it to work in the weak interactions of particle physics, and Gerard de Tuff showed that it all made mathematical sense. So it took many, many very smart people putting this theory together. And again, we're talking about the first half of the 1960s. We're talking about quite a while ago. So just to uh, say once again what we're thinking about here is that this Higgs field, the way that we talk about nature is to propose new fields and then how they interact with things. The difference between the Higgs field and all the other fields of nature is that in empty space, in the zero energy state, when space is as empty as it can possibly be, the Higgs field has a big non-zero value. So other fields, if you think about what they're doing in empty space, here's your location in space, here's the value of the field, there's small oscillations just because of the miracle of quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics, the uncertainty principle, says you can't pin down a field to an absolutely quiescent zero value, but you can have it pretty darn quiet, so it's just gently fluctuating even in empty space. So this includes the electromagnetic field, the strong interactions, the quark fields, the electron fields, the neutrino fields, etc. The Higgs field in empty space is way up here. 
So as you walk through the universe, as you wave your hand through space, you are moving through Higgs field. It is everywhere at some big non-zero value. The question is, how would you ever know? That means a dramatic idea. Empty space has this field in it that is affecting all the other fields around it. How would you know it's true? The answer is you poke the field and it vibrates. And you see a vibration in a field as a particle. This idea that the universe is filled with this new field called the Higgs field makes a prediction that there's a new particle called the Higgs boson. So what we're trying to do is to look for the Higgs boson particle because that would be evidence that there's a Higgs field in empty space and that would explain why the weak interactions are short range. That's why we wanted to do it in the first place. There's another thing that the Higgs field does, which is, was a complete bonus. It was a spin-off. It was an unanticipated benefit of this Higgs field idea. Namely, it can explain why other particles have mass. And this is the first explanation that is usually given, and it's much harder to understand. It, in fact, was not even thought of by Peter Higgs or any of those other guys who invented the idea in the first place. It was Steven Weinberg, uh, a couple of years later, who was struggling with the idea that he had what he thought was a really good theory of the weak interactions, but it had one flaw. It only works if all the particles of nature are massless electrons, quarks he didn't know about, but protons, neutrons, whatever, they would have to have zero mass. And what it means if you have zero mass is that you move at the speed of light. That's what Einstein says. You can have massless particles like photons, gravitons, but they move at the speed of light. And Weinberg realized that that would be bad. Think about what an electron does. An electron orbits around an atom. And the reason why it can orbit around an atom is because it has mass, it can settle down, be brought to zero velocity, and therefore you can get atoms, you can get molecules, you can get chemistry, you can get life. If the electron were massless, it would never bind to a proton to make an atom. There would be no atoms, there would be no life in the universe. All the interesting complexity around us in the universe is only made possible because the electron has a mass, and Steven Weinberg's brilliant theory wouldn't work because uh, his theory predicted very clearly the electron had to be massless. What he realized was there was this thing called the Higgs field, which if it filled empty space, broke the symmetry that prevented particles from getting mass, and now, with the Higgs in the background, the electron can get a mass. It can settle into atoms, you can have chemistry, you can have the world we see. So it's because the electrons in your body are moving through this invisible Higgs field that they're not moving at the speed of light, that they get some heft, some inertia that we, that we perceive as mass. So we want to know, is this idea correct or not? This is an idea going back to the 1960s. We want to test it. We want to do good particle physics, so we build the Large Hadron Collider. This is a gigantic machine, the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, it is the largest single machine ever built by human beings. 27 kilometers underground, right outside Geneva. So there's the Geneva airport, there's Lake Geneva. You could stand on top of the Large Hadron Collider and you'd never know. It's 100 meters underground. So you're in someone's living room or out in the cow pasture and 100 meters underneath you, nature's fundamental secrets are being discovered. There are many, many numbers and impressive uh, facts about the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, it's approximately $9 billion to build the Large Hadron Collider. That is not cheap, 
but it was done over the course of many years, many countries. There are many other things that we do here on Earth that cost a lot more than $9 billion with a lot less interesting results. Let's just put it that way. Uh, what does it do? Well, you take individual protons, which are nice because they're relatively heavy, stable, electrically charged particles, and you accelerate them. You get them going to 99.999999% the speed of light. And what that means is they have a lot of energy. And then you take other protons and you zoom them in the other direction and you smash them together. And you watch what comes out. So because they have this enormous amount of energy, Einstein says E equals mc squared. If you have a lot of energy, you can make new particles with a lot of mass. So sometimes this idea of smashing particles together, the particle physicists do, is explained by saying, imagine you smash two wristwatches together and you watch the pieces come out and you try to figure out how wristwatches work that way. This is a really dumb analogy. Because when you smash the protons together, the things that come out were never inside the particles in the first place. What's going on is remember the world is made of field. The proton is made of quarks and gluons, which are little vibrating fields, and they're vibrating so enormously, that's what it means to have high energy, that those fields can interact with other fields around them and start them vibrating, and we see this as brand new particles coming out. So a better analogy would be smashing two Timex watches together and a Rolex appears. <laughs> it's rare, but you're creating something that wasn't there before. To do this is an enormous technological challenge. Uh, the magnets inside the Large Hadron Collider are superconducting magnets that are colder than outer space. The little beam pipe through which the protons move is emptier than outer space. There's many, many miles of cable, etc., many, many people working on the project. It is a big thing, the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, thousands of people are involved. If you want to give credit to a couple of people, probably you would pick these guys. Carlo Rubia, Nobel Prize winning physicist who discovered the W and Z bosons of the weak interactions at CERN back in the early 80s. Uh, he was the one who really pushed CERN to build the Large Hadron Collider, even though the Americans were planning to build their own machine, the Superconducting Super Collider, which would have been finished first and have higher energy. But Rubia said, I've spent time in America, don't believe anything they say. <laughs> we should build our own machine just in case. And of course, in 1993, Congress in the US canceled the superconducting supercollider, and the LHC was officially approved like the next hour or something like that. Uh, Lynn, that's not true, but relative, you know, metaphorically speaking. Uh, Lynn Evans, a Welsh physicist, was given the job of overseeing the construction of the LHC from design to completion, and only last year he officially stepped down. He is the one guy, if you want, who built the LHC. And there's something I needed to pause here just for a second because I think it's very important when talking about this history of physics to show pictures of people because physics is not something that we just figure out. It's not handed down to us from the heavens or anything like that. It's human beings doing work, struggling, devoting their lives, making it happen with all of the imperfections that human beings often have. However, when you show these pictures, you notice, if you are in a certain frame of mind, that they're all guys. They're all men. And why is that true? It's true because over the history of physics, women have been terribly discriminated against. And what I want to point out is that that is changing quite rapidly. Here are the number in the United States of bachelor's degrees, doctorate degrees, and postdoctoral degrees given to women as a fraction of the total. It's still much smaller than you might uh, want it to be, but it's growing linearly. 
And so the number of doctorates went from uh, 2.5% to 20% over the course of, you know, from the 1960s to 2010, not because women's inherent intelligence went up by all that much over that course of time, but because society is changing and women are fighting for the right to be scientists if that's what they want to be. I don't care myself what the fraction of women doing physics is. What I care about is that every human being who wants to do physics gets an equal chance. We're not there yet, but we're moving in the right direction. So sometime 100 years from now, you'll uh, have a speaker here giving an update on progress in particle physics, and they'll be showing a lot more pictures of men and women both. So back to building the LHC. It's a challenge to build something like the LHC, the world's largest machine. You don't get trained in graduate school to build the largest machine ever built because no one had ever done it before. There will be surprises. There will be unusual challenges. There are two experiments. Remember, the LHC is a ring that's, that accelerates and collides protons, but then you want to look at what comes out of those collisions. So there are two experiments, general purpose apparatuses, that do that, one called ATLAS, one called CMS. And CMS drew the short end of the straw, and it's located on the opposite side of the ring from the main laboratory at CERN. So this is a, a piece of CMS being uh, trundled down the streets of a medieval French village. And when you designed CMS, you had to build your pieces so that they weren't too big to be trundled down the streets of medieval French villages. So that puts a little constraint on how the experiment works. And then you have to dig tunnels, because everything is 100 meters underground. So you're taking things like this, dropping them down 100 meters. So you start digging, and you realize you're, you're in a, a countryside that has had villages for a long time. So you immediately discover an ancient Roman ruin from the year 400. And all the physicists get kicked out, and the archaeologists get brought in. And for six months, you watch in desolation as you're trying to build your machine, but in fact the archaeologists are uh, digging up coins and pottery and whatever it is they do. Uh, finally, they get finished. We kick out the archaeologists. The physicists get back to work. They finish building their tunnel. You can drop down your, uh, your magnets, your detectors. You put them all together over the course of many years, very delicately, big collaborations with many different uh, countries involved. And finally, you turn it on, and then 10 days later, it explodes. So in September of 2008, the LHC turned on, champagne bottles uh, were popped and, and people celebrated, and 10 days later, there was what the press release described as a leak. It was the kind of leak that would have killed you had you been standing next to it. Six tons of liquid helium were splashed on the floor of the ring, but there was no one standing there because there are safety procedures involved. But this is the, uh, the, one of the magnets after the explosion happened. This is very depressing because you'd worked for many, many years, you'd spent a lot of your effort, and it blew up you know, within less than two weeks after you turned it on. To the enormous credit of the technicians, engineers, and experimental physicists behind the Large Hadron Collider, they immediately got back to work, they figured out what was wrong, they went in there and looked at every single magnet, they fixed them, tightened the screws, resoldered everything, and in November 2009, they turned the machine on again, and it's been running like a charm ever since. So sometimes you learn from your mistakes, although they can be a little disconcerting at the time. Again, two large experiments. Here's ATLAS. It looks like an alien spaceship. Here is CMS. I don't know exactly what it looks like, but CMS stands for Compact Muon Solenoid. This is physics humor. Uh, I can show you the picture of a human being. So if that's compact, uh, it's compact compared to ATLAS, but they're both pretty gigantically huge. 
and they are put together by collaborations that have over 3,000 people in each of them from many different institutions across the world. So you might have a little piece here that was built in Russia that is communicating to a piece next to it that was built in Brazil, then next to it a piece that was made in Italy and so forth. The fact that it works at all is a miracle and the, the thing that I heard most often talking to experimental particle physicists while writing my book was, if the United Nations worked as well as CERN did, there would be world peace. Uh, what the detectors do is they wait for these protons to smash together. That happens a hundred million times a second. Every collision generates about one megabyte of data. If you do the math in your head very quickly, you will realize that in a few seconds, that is more data than is in any database on the Earth today. So what do you do? You throw it away. You throw away all but one out of every million collisions that are generated. You look at them very quickly. You say, that doesn't look interesting, it looks boring, and you throw it away. You can't keep all of the data, but you keep the ones that look interesting, and then you apply enormous processing power to that. The LHC does, in fact, have the largest database on Earth right now, but it's still a tiny fraction of the total data created. And then you hand it over to the experimentalists. Uh, Atlas uh, was led by Fabiola Gianotti back when they first claimed the Higgs boson discovery. She has since, in a peaceful transfer of power, handed over reins to Dave Charlton. Uh, Guido Tonelli was the boss of CMS when they first got the hint for the Higgs boson, and Joe Incandela was the one who got to announce the final discovery there. And these people lead collaborations with over 3,000 people. So when Atlas or CMS write a paper, there are over 3,000 authors on the paper. It is very often the case that the list of authors is longer than the paper. This used to be a problem when papers were printed on paper. Nowadays, we have electrons and it's all fine. And I like, to, I like to bring things back to Earth. The LHC is an enormous, impressive, overwhelming thing, but not every piece of it is overwhelming and enormous. Here is where the protons come from. This is about that big. This is a little canister that looks like a fire extinguisher. It's a canister of hydrogen. Okay, where do you get protons from? The hydrogen molecule is two hydrogen atoms. A hydrogen atom is one electron and one proton. So you take hydrogen molecules, you zap them with electricity until the electrons and the protons separate, and now you have protons. And all of the protons, 100 trillion at a time, zooming around the LHC, they come from this little canister. And that canister is enough to kept, keep the LHC going for many billions of times the age of the universe. Protons are not the limiting factor when it comes to send money and we will keep the LHC going for billions and billions of years. And we're going to take these protons, these unsuspecting protons. There is, by the way, a Twitter account, LHC Proton, that you can check up on uh, the, that particular proton's thoughts as it goes around the ring. Uh, eventually, you will smash into another proton and, and new particles will come out. Here is the sad news for you would-be Higgs hunters. You will never see a Higgs boson. You can create a Higgs boson, but the Higgs boson decays. That's a very short lifetime. The lifetime is one zeptosecond, which is a really short period of time. Uh, the technology in the LHC is good enough that if something lives for one millionth of a second, you can detect that it was there, but a zeptosecond is, is less than a millionth of a millionth of a millionth. You have no chance. What you can do is you can detect what the Higgs boson decays into. So this is an event, this is not um, a simulation, this is data where you made a spray of particles and then a couple of them stand out. This is a, pro a positron and an electron. This is a muon and an anti-muon. 
And this is the kind of event that you might expect if your protons had come together, made a Higgs boson, and it decayed into this electron, anti-electron, muon, anti-muon pairs. The problem is that there are other ways to make collisions that look exactly like this. So not only will you never detect a Higgs boson by sight, you will never be able to point at an event and go, oh yes, that must be a Higgs boson. There are other ways to make this event. In fact, there are more ways to make this event than by making Higgs bosons. So what do you do? Well, you hand it over to your theorist friends, and they predict what kinds of things might come out of the Higgs boson decaying. And again, due to the miracle of quantum mechanics, there's a pie chart. It's not a definite prediction. There are probabilities involved. Sometimes quarks, sometimes gauge bosons, sometimes uh, photons and so forth. And so you're going to look for these, this different rate of different particles being produced. But the crucial thing is, because every one event has different possible explanations, you need statistics. You need data. You need to achieve statistical significance. So sometimes people say that looking for a Higgs boson at something like the LHC is like looking for a needle in a haystack if only it were that easy. It's hard to find a needle in a haystack, but when you find it, you know you found it. Looking for the Higgs boson is like looking for hay in a haystack. The Higgs boson says that if you took the, your haystack and you st stood up all the stalks and arranged them by length, there would be a slightly anomalously large number of stalks at a certain length. So you need to do very careful statistical analyses of the data, and that's why it takes time. That's why this discovery sneaks up on you. You can see that there is a little bit of a signal. You don't know if it's just a fluctuation or if it's real. You need to collect more data before you can declare victory. Victory came in July 4th, 2012. So these two plots, what are these showing you? Uh, these are the two plots that I needed to argue with my publisher over including them in my book, because he said, uh, you can't include these, they're too scary. They look like science. There's numbers and data points, and no one really wants that, really. And my, my counter-argument was, we paid $9 billion for these plots, we should include them in the book. <laughs> they are in the book. I won that argument. So what are these? Well, you're, what you're looking for in this particular example is two very, very high-energy photons being uh, created in a collision. And because of weird particle physics ways of thinking, the units for the energy of the photon is in billions of electron volts. You don't need to know what that is. But because E equals mc squared, you can convert back from mass to energy. So what you predict is that at low energies, there's quite a few events, and they get fewer and fewer events as you get to higher and higher energies for those photons coming out. So this smooth curve, the dashed line, is the prediction that you would expect. And you see there is a bump. There's a few more events right there in the ATLAS data. There's a few more events right there in the CMS data. It is very, very important there are two experiments looking for the same thing, getting the same answer, because you wouldn't believe necessarily just one experiment. Uh, and you also wouldn't believe that there was a bump there if they didn't draw a line that you could actually see the bump. But of course, they do the statistics. They look at this very, very carefully. There's less than a one in a million chance that those bumps just happen by accident. And especially when you add the fact that they happen in both experiments in the same data set, what that means is that you have discovered a new particle of nature, a new vibrating field with a mass of about 126 billion electron volts, about 126 times the mass of the proton. 
a new piece of nature exactly where we would expect the Higgs boson to be. So it took time. The, the physicists were cautious at first. They said, we have discovered a Higgs-like particle. But what does it mean to be Higgs-like? Remember that pie chart of ways to decay. You want it not just to decay into photons, but also into quarks and Z bosons and so forth. And that's what they've been checking. And just in the last month, they are, they're willing to go on record as saying, yes, the thing we have found is a Higgs boson. So what that means is that somebody's going to win the Nobel Prize for something. We don't know who, though. There's this charming but antiquated rule that the Nobel Committee has that only three or fewer people can win the Nobel Prize in any one year. You remember I had that slide of people who invented the Higgs boson idea. There were more than three people on it. So that's a problem. So my suggestion was that some person should convince the Nobel Committee to change its rules so that collaborations could win the Nobel Prize, and that that person should win the Nobel Peace Prize for their efforts. <laughs> I don't know whether that will happen or not. Even better would be if the experimentalists win a Nobel Prize, but there are 3,000 experimentalists on each team. Something is going to have to give there, because this discovery is absolutely worthy of Nobel-level recognition. But we're not done. The Higgs boson was the one thing that we were pretty sure would be there at the LHC. That's why I met, made a bet with Brian Schmidt. That's why I'm here today. But we don't want to stop. You know, the LHC is, in fact, shut down a couple months ago because it's being upgraded to go at higher energies. It's going to be shut down for two years while they uh, upgrade all the gizmos. It's going to come back in 2015 and start smashing things together in a regime where we have not yet looked. We want to find more particles, not just the Higgs boson. We're convinced that there are more particles to be found because there is dark matter in the universe. The dark matter that the astronomers have found is the best evidence we have that we're not done with physics. Uh, the dark matter is this stuff. This is an actual map of dark matter. This is created by, you know, you are here, and over here there are galaxies very far away, and you look at the deflection of light that travels from those galaxies to us, and with that you can figure out where the matter in the universe is. You can compare it with the ordinary matter, the matter of the standard model of particle physics, and you're nowhere close. The total amount of matter in the universe is five times as much as you can possibly account for by ordinary atoms, by quarks, leptons, photons, gluons, etc. There needs to be new particle physics that we haven't yet discovered. The, dark, the existence of dark matter is the thing that keeps par particle physicists optimistic that the LHC is nowhere near done yet. We can't be sure. It's possible that the dark matter is going to be inaccessible to the LHC, but it absolutely indicates there's something remaining to be found. We have ideas for what it could be. There's something called supersymmetry, an idea that if you have all the standard model particles, they each have a duplicate. They each have a heavier evil twin. So for every fermion, that is to say quarks and leptons, there's a supersymmetric partner boson, and you get its name by taking the name of the regular particle and putting an S in front. So there are quarks and squarks, leptons and sleptons, <laughs> top quarks and stop quarks, bottoms and spottoms. It's, you know, endless amusement. And then for every boson in the standard model, there is a fermionic superpartner, and you get that name by tacking eno to the N. So you get gluons, gluinos, gravitons, gravitinos, higgsinos, and so forth. So we hope that the particles we know of the standard model are only half of the particles waiting to be discovered. 
we haven't seen any evidence at all that supersymmetry is right. But it would be nice if it were right. It provides an excellent candidate for the dark matter. It helps us explain some puzzling features of the standard model and so forth. We're crossing our fingers that either supersymmetry or something even better is lurking right around the corner. These new theories make interesting predictions. So for example, you notice that there's not one circle here over Higgs. There are five. It turns out that if supersymmetry is right, there's not one Higgs boson. There are five Higgs boson particles. So it might be that we haven't discovered the Higgs boson. We've discovered 20% of the Higgs bosons that are out there to be discovered. We are very, very, very eager and anticipating what's going to happen when the LHC turns back on. In the meantime, though, just because we look forward doesn't mean we shouldn't celebrate where we've gotten to. We really have achieved something very, very important. Because of how quantum field theory works, we can divide up physics into different sectors, different parts of nature that talk to each other in noticeable ways. So the ordinary matter that you and I are made of is described by the standard model of particle physics. There's no room in the atoms that you are made of for any new physics to be important that we haven't yet discovered. If there was another field affecting this table or this laser pointer or your brain, if it obeyed the rules of quantum field theory, we would have found it by now. So within the realm of everyday experience, everything you've ever seen with your eyes, heard with your ears, touched with your fingers, we know what particles that stuff is made of. We are done. We have the atom. We have the Higgs field lurking in the background. We have finally, as of July 4th, 2012, achieved a consistent, clear, and correct picture of the ordinary matter of which you and I are made. We are not anywhere near done with physics. There's other matter out there that we don't understand yet, but still, in this room, we understand what the particles are. That project that was started by Democritus 2,500 years ago of understanding the matter around us, the, the stuff of the universe in terms of indivisible elementary particles we have now have a certain region of uh, conceptual space that is under our control. We know what is going on when we look at the world immediately in front of our eyes, as of July 4th last year, and that is why this has been a big deal. Thank you. Okay, so we have about half an hour for questions. And don't forget, don't say anything until you have a microphone in your hands. Um. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you for a very uh, wonderful talk. Uh, it was pitched at the right level for a non-physicist like me. Good. So thank you very much. Uh, my question really is, when was this idea uh, to uh, do this experiment, which would detect his boson conceived? Uh, the, I understand that in the 60s, Higgs and a few others you showed came up theoretically with this thing called, uh, what we call Higgs boson. Right. Uh, when did the experimentalist uh, got together and said, hey, this is something that seems to uh, really exist, so we have to do an experiment to detect it? Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question, and the answer is it sneaked up on people. Higgs himself, uh, when he, he submitted his paper to be published, uh, that with the Higgs field in it, it was rejected by the journal, uh, by the European journal Physics Letters. 
And so he said, well, that's okay. I'll just send it to the Americans. They'll accept anything. But he thought that just to be safe, he should beef up his paper a little bit. So he added a paragraph saying, oh, by the way, this predicts a new particle of nature. So he was the first to suggest there would be a particle. But like, like I said, in the 1960s, no one believed any of these guys. This was not the way that physics was moving. It wasn't until the early 70s that the concept really caught on. And it wasn't until sort of 1974-ish that uh, theorists really sat down and says, here's how you would go looking for the Higgs boson. And so ever since then, people tried to look for it. They tried to look at a Fermilab outside Chicago, at the predecessor to uh, the LHC, which was called the Large Electron-Positron Collider at CERN, uh, and nothing. You know, we didn't have a prediction for what its mass should be. So it was sort of a fishing expedition. But since the mid-70s, we've been, we've been certainly aware that it's something we should look for. The, one of the slides you showed near the end there that showed all the super partners to the, the particles that we're still looking for. Right. If you find, yeah, so if you find one of those, does it have any implication on the partners of all the others, or, or, or is, are these all going to come independently? Well, that's a, it's a very good question. Is there just, um, are there connections enough so that if you figure out one particle, you get to figure out the others? Roughly speaking, the answer is you got to find every frickin' particle before <laughs> you really know what is going on. The idea of supersymmetry is extremely elegant and crisp and precise, but it's also clearly not manifest in nature because if supersymmetry is exact, then the masses of the partners are the same as the masses of the original particles, and that's obviously not true. The selectron, there is no selectron that has the same mass as the electron. It would have been easy to detect a long time ago. So supersymmetry is broken in nature if it exists at all. And once you break supersymmetry, there's a billion parameters you need to specify. It's literally not a billion, but it's over 100 free parameters that you need to figure out. So full employment for experimental particle physicists if they discover the first one. Wherever uh, the microphone is, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Look, I have trouble getting through my head exactly what kind of animal, vegetable, or mineral a field is. You said it's like a wave. But what is, a, what is a wave? I mean, and a field, can you grow potatoes in it? Like, can you cut it up into bits and pieces? To most people, they think, like, if something's a material thing, it's made of matter. How can you have something which really exists, but which, doesn't, which isn't material? So okay. I suppose it's a philosophical problem, but I still don't understand. No, no, no. What I kind of thing is a, a field? There's a very clear... There's two things that I should say. One is a definition, and one is a piece of advice. Uh, the definition is, what is a field? A field is a mathematical object that takes on a value at every point in space. That's what a field is. It's absolutely, rigorously, clearly defined. There are different kinds of values that you can take on, scalars and vectors and tensors and so forth. But we know what a field is from the mathematical, formal perspective. The conceptual problem is that we expect things to be made of other things. But the fields in the standard model of particle physics aren't made of anything. They're what the other things are made of. The world is made of those fields. So you shouldn't be asking, what is the field made of? What can I do to it? What you should be asking is, how does the notion of a field give me the, the world I see around me? And there are large textbooks full of equations that help try to explain that to you. <laughs> so, um uh, an amateur physicist called Slavoj Žižek in an article proposed that 
the discovery of the Higgs boson in disturbing the objective fabric of nothingness as in like it, it's a field that has a positive value in nothingness also disturbs the objective fabric of any physical phenomena which perhaps has a fundamental significance to objectivism itself and proposed that it could have a solution to the problem of uh, Heisenberg uncertainty. Do you see any relation between these two questions? Well, you know, uh, Zizek, like many other amateur physicists, enjoys using ideas from physics as uh, food for metaphorical inspiration, but you shouldn't get too carried away. Uh, the basic idea of Heisenberg uncertainty is manifested in quantum field theory, just like in other ideas of quantum mechanics. The particular idea of the Higgs boson doesn't tell us anything new about the ultimate structure of quantum mechanics or uncertainty and so forth. It's a prediction of quantum mechanics. Uh, it's just something that fits into our framework very well. Quantum mechanics has fundamental questions we can ask about it that are hard to answer. What happens when you make a measurement? Uh, what happens uh, when at the universe when you're not looking at it at all? Uh, I think that these things have answers, but discovering the Higgs boson has not helped us figure out those answers at all. Yes, yes. Uh, could you also shed some light on the name Boson? How did that come about? Uh, they're, they're named after Bose, who was an Indian physicist who uh, first figured out the statistics of particles that like to pile on top of each other. So there are fermions, named after Fermi, who figured out the statistics of particles that take up space. You can't have two fermions in the same place at the same time. Bosons prefer to be on top of each other, and he was the first one who figured out what that meant, and what it means is that you get forces of nature. Oh, thank you. Uh, my name's Ian Bryce. At the recent Sydney Mardi Gras, I built a float to celebrate the discovery of the Higgs boson. Good for you. Including costumes and dance and choreography and so forth. To us, us atheists, it's known as the godless particle, right. which is a variation on a theme. I've also written a long poem called Ode to the Higgs, describing the physics uh, with illustrations. Do you know if there have been any other artistic type events relating to the discovery of the Higgs boson, please? Well, of course, that's a, that's a good question. And, you know, again, I th I'm a big believer that scientific discoveries of all forms are excellent um, fodder for thinking about art in unusual ways. And the reason why is because physics is forced onto us by the data. It's not stuff that we would have invented just by sitting around and thinking about it. The idea of quantum mechanics, the idea of field theory, the idea of supersymmetry, we were really forced by confronting experiments to come up with these ideas. And therefore, we invent things like relativity and quantum mechanics that are very different than our everyday experience and therefore can push the artistic imagination in different ways. So there have been poems, there have been operas, there have been plays, there have been paintings. The Higgs boson is all over the place. Thank, thank you, Sean, for a very interesting presentation. I'm going to push the metaphysical point just a little bit further. Um, are we not in a position today where we've taken the Newtonian spooky action at a distance and replaced it by just a spooky field that we don't know anything about? Uh, okay, it's a mathematical entity, I understand that, uh, but it somehow strikes me as odd uh, 
to think of the universe or the physical stuff that we know as being made of mathematics. That just doesn't, doesn't work for me. So how do we make sense of this idea? Are we back to some sort of clandestine ether theory that we're not allowed to call an ether theory because ethers are not supposed to exist and we're just not allowed to say that they are ethers? Or what, what are we... Where are we with this, this idea of having 27 different types of fields that the universe is made of? Well, you know, whether or not something works for you is, is not my job. <laughs> it is the model of the universe that fits the data, and we have no competitors right now at the deep level. Um, if you want to draw analogies between fields and the ether, this, this old idea, you know, there's sim certainly uh, a similarity there, but the differences are, to my mind, more important. The whole idea of the ether was this stuff that was a medium through which light waves traveled. You could measure your velocity with respect to it. The Higgs field is in empty space, just like the ether was, but light waves do not travel through it, Higgs bosons do, and you cannot measure your velocity with respect to it. Uh, every velocity is just as good as every other velocity. So in all the relevant ways, it is not like the ether. But if you want to call it the ether, that's, that's fine. What's, what's important is that you know, our job is to figure out models that fit the data and then accept them and try to push them further and further. But it, you know, Newton was disturbed by action at a distance. Laplace was able to do better because his field theory was purely local. You don't need to describe what's going on here in terms of what's going on there. What's going on here is only affected by things nearby. But those things are affected by things nearby, etc. However, if Laplace had not come up with his field theory, you still would have had Newtonian gravity. It would have bothered people. So what? It would fit the data. We, we are bugged by certain features of our best descriptions, and, and being bugged forces us to try to think of better ideas. But at the end of the day, the final analysis, fitting the data, is what makes us say that a theory is true or not. Uh, Sean, I, I was just wondering, is there any work going on to understand, like with um, electrons and protons, which have charge, and um, you know they, you've got the electromagnetic force that interacts with the charges, and in the, in the strong field, um, the colour charges, apparently. Um, is there any work to try to understand what is the attribute of these different particles that that then results in a different mass within this Higgs field. Is sure. There any, like, yes, that is, a, that is a very, um, that's, there is an answer to that question. So uh, when you talk about these other boson fields, gravity, photons, gluons, etc., they interact with matter because the matter that they're interacting with has some sort of charge. An electric charge lets you interact with photons, a color charge lets you interact with gluons, and so forth. Every one of these particles that gets a mass from the Higgs has a number associated with it, a coupling constant, which says, how strongly do I interact with the Higgs boson? The problematic aspect of that is that there's only one number that says, how strong are the strong interactions, how strong are the electromagnetic interactions, how strong are the gravitational interactions. But for the Higgs interaction, every particle gets its own number. We have no idea of where those numbers came from. The electron is much, much lighter than the top quark because its coupling constant to the Higgs is much, much smaller by one millionth of the coupling constant for the top quark. Why? I have no idea. I would like to know. 
That is one of the things we're trying to think about. So we have the phenomenology, we have the model that fits the data, Not, no, very few particle physicists think it's the final answer. We are bugged in this sort of conceptual sense by this randomness in the theory. We think that maybe, hopefully, someday we'll figure out some underlying order. There's somebody way up there who really wants to... But Professor Carroll, I was just going to ask how the uh, Higgs field leads to the concept of mass, and I think you've you've uh, just touched on that uh, now, but I wonder whether, and I hesitate to ask this because you've stretched our minds enough as it is, but whether you could expand on that idea a bit, a bit further. That's right. So I didn't really explain in any detail why the Higgs boson is necessary to give mass because it's really hard to understand. Uh, it ultimately comes down to the fact that there was this discovery in the 1950s when people were, d were studying the weak interactions of particle physics that parity is violated. Parity not in the sense of making fun of something, but parity in the sense of looking at the mirror image of something. If you do a physics experiment that involves the weak interactions, and then you do the same kind of experiment with right-handed and left-handed swapped with each other, the weak interactions can tell the difference. They give you a different prediction for the world that we see and the world that we see in a mirror. And that blew people's minds, Nobel Prizes were handed out, Steven Weinberg figured out how to understand it, that the weak interactions only couple to particles that are spinning counterclockwise, not particles that are spinning clockwise. But it turns out that a mass needs to connect counterclockwise spinning particles to clockwise spinning particles. Because if, you're, if you have mass, you can stop the particle and you can look at it from the other side. And now what was spinning clockwise is spinning counterclockwise. If particles are massless and moving at the speed of light, you can never catch up to them and change one to the other. So to give particles mass means that clockwise and counterclockwise should be indistinguishable. But his theory of the weak interactions distinguished between them a lot. And it's the Higgs boson that undoes that symmetry and allows you to give mass. It's the fact that uh, the Higgs boson breaks a symmetry of nature that lets you slow everything down. Is it likely that the um, Higgs field will give dark matter its mass, and will we collide protons together in the LHC to find dark matter? Right. I wish I knew the answer to those questions. Um, it could be that the Higgs is involved in giving mass to the dark matter particles, but it might also not be true. There are models that go both ways. This is an open question. What is, what is more Optimistic, what we're more optimistic about is that the Higgs interacts with the dark matter particle. It turns out that, in some sense, the Higgs boson is more sociable than the other particles of the standard model. It has a little bit less symmetry, so it's easier for the Higgs to interact with dark matter than for photons or gluons. So we are building these giant detectors underground that are trying to directly detect dark matter particles by a dark matter particle comes in and bounces off an atom and that bouncing off, the interaction that causes that to happen is the exchange of a Higgs boson. So knowing the feature of the Higgs boson helps us understand exactly what we're doing when we're looking for dark matter. Uh, but that's only a model-dependent statement. That's only true in some versions of someone's theories. In other theories, they have nothing to do with each other, sadly. Yep. This is a, a personal matter. You mentioned earlier that one of your colleagues at, um, in California, was a Carl Anderson. Is that correct? Well, I mean, he, we never overlapped in time, but in space, yes, he was you know, doing his experiments in the 1930s. Was that the, the same Carl Anderson that used the Beavertron at UC Berkeley? 
to establish the existence of antimatter after it had been theoretically uh, expected by Paul Dirac from Cambridge. Yes, Carl Anderson was the one who first discovered antimatter, but it was not at the Bevatron at Berkeley. It was uh, in a cloud chamber on the roof of a building at Caltech. At Caltech? That's right. It not was at UCLA. No. So not, not at U, U, UC Berkeley? No, that's right. It was well, at I, I, I've been to the Bevatron, and they're very proud of the fact that it was there that Carl Anderson... <laughs> they, they should be very proud of many things, and antimatter is not one of them. The anti-proton, but not the anti-electron. The Bevatron was built in the 1950s and 60s, and the positron was discovered in the 1930s, so I'm pretty sure that it wasn't that. Yes. Uh, hi, Sean. Thank you. Um, uh, you. You spoke very well and obviously see the universe with um, significant insight. Um, Richard Feynman uh, once described... Um, uh, if there was some sort of cataclysmic destruction or something and um, all scientific knowledge was lost and you could leave one sentence behind for future scientists, uh, what would you leave? And his response was that atoms move. My question to you is what sentence would you leave behind? Yeah, I, I, I don't like that question because Feynman stole the right answer and uh, <laughs> that's a really good answer to that. I think, I'm not sure whether someone else asked him that question or whether he invented the question himself just so he could come up with the clever answer. <laughs> or not. But the idea, you know, I, if I could figure out one sentence that would get across quantum mechanics to people who didn't understand quantum mechanics, I would try to do that, but I have no such sentence, I'm afraid. Numbers move. Uh, All right. Uh, yeah, supersymmetry seems to suggest to me that the amount of ordinary matter should be about the same as the amount of dark matter, but there's a lot more dark matter, so is the is the breakdown of the parallels or the supersymmetry to explain that? Yeah, um, supersymmetry is broken in the real world. Supersymmetry is an underlying symmetry, but it is not at all manifest in the world we see around us. So all of these superpartners, oops, I'm running out of power. Um, all of these superpartners are much heavier. You're going to have to ignore that. They're much heavier than the regular particles, which means that they decay, which means that they don't last. So there's one particle that lasts, and it is the dark matter, but everything else just decays away very, very rapidly. So there's no reason to expect a symmetry between the amount of ordinary matter and the amount of supermatter. Um, um, I just have a question about measurement. So um, I don't quite understand how you get the data from the collisions. How is, how is that actually recorded into a data form? Ah. Yeah, no, that's a great question because I didn't really have time to answer anything like that. But these, uh, if you look at these pictures of these uh, experiments, they're concentric cylinders. So you know what particles can come out when you smash the protons together because what can come out are the various particles of the standard model, the photons and the electrons and the what have you. Um, and what you do is, maybe the other picture is a better image. Um, what you do is you build nearby, there's an inner chamber, which can detect the electrons, and it's just, you know, just like a camera does. It detects electrons and photons because they go through the matter and they bump into the electrons in the, in the atoms. They leave behind a little electrical charge, and you, you detect that charge. And then the 
strongly interacting particles were to plow through and leave a big wake, so you have some heavier matter in a detector around that, the hadronic calorimeter that detects the energies. And then way outside here, you have the muons, which punch all the way through, and then you can detect them uh, because they're the only ones that can make it out there, but they're also electrically charged, so again, they bump into other electrons. And it's a very, you know, it's a, a huge amount of technological progress to make all that happen. Oh, hi. I just had a quick question about the state of uh, field theory. I was just wondering if maybe you could make a few comments on what the current thinking is about um, sort of the state of fields uh, sort of closer to the Big Bang and um, the relation of the Higgs boson to maybe sort of how the fields have evolved and maybe where you see the fields evolving to sort of towards, you know, for one of a better phrase, the end, end of the current universe? Well, we, we believe, and you know, we could be wrong, but we believe that the kinds of fields that exist don't change over time. But the features of different fields can change by a lot. So some fields can be very massive and hard to produce, and then later on they become massless and easy. Other fields can combine together in different ways to give you completely different looking things. So we think that the Higgs boson field, the electron field, and what have you, were there at the Big Bang, but they might have been in an absolutely unrecognizable form. And we talk about grand unification, restoration of symmetries, but that's so far away from what we can experimentally probe right now that it's, it's just a bunch of hypotheses at the moment. Hi. Just checking. I have no idea where you are. Yeah. Can you like, yeah, there you are. <laughs> um, from a few of the questions like five minutes ago, it sounded like some non-scientists had a problem with a bit of a like, philosophical aspect of it, like they weren't happy with saying that such and such exists. Um, I want to ask, what do you think is the main issue for non-physicists in understanding things like this? Do you think it's a philosophical aspect of accepting using words in certain ways, or do you think it's a, like an aversion to maths, or what, what do you think? Well, I think that, you know, it's not surprising that the theories, like we've died, um, that the theories that physics comes up with after decades of effort end up looking very, very different than our everyday experience, right? I mean, it's in a regime where we don't see things in our everyday experience, so our intuition is completely failing. Field theory, relativity, quantum mechanics, these are all very, very different things. And so what you need to balance as a working physicist is this belief that what the theory is telling you should be taken seriously, even if it's completely different than what you expect, even if there's no particles of which the fields are made, et cetera, even if quantum mechanics doesn't give you certain outcomes. But at the same time, you can use your intuition for what feels complete and settled versus what sounds like there's more to be discovered. Um, <coughs> last time I was here in Sydney giving a talk, I was talking about the arrow of time for which an explanation requires saying that the early universe has a very low entropy. There are people who say that the explanation for that is that the early universe had a very low entropy, stop asking that question. There are other people like me who say, no, 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 that must be a clue to something deeper we don't yet understand. And both attitudes are ultimately perfectly legitimate. It's eventually what the better theory is gonna tell us that will decide one way or the other. <coughs> Hi, Sean. I'm just, um Excellent presentation. Um, I'm just wondering, um, from a nine million billion dollar project, uh, what's the uh, commercial return on investment? <laughs> and to who? It's a perfectly who legitimate uh -huh. question. There's, and there's two parts of it. One is there's there's a hope in certain circles that if you spend all that money on an experiment of any sort, 
there should be some tangible technological economic payoff. People give examples of the discovery of radio waves or electricity or quantum mechanics and look at all the wonderful technology we got out of that. No technology is gonna come out of the Higgs boson. It lasts for one zeptosecond and you need to spend $9 billion just make one, okay? You're not gonna get a better iPhone or a jetpack or teleportation out of the Higgs boson. The reason why we do it is because we are curious about how the world works and that should be payoff enough. Now, however, at the same time, because of the enormous technological advances that are required to build the Large Hadron Collider and ATLAS and CMS and to do all the data analysis, you do end up pushing technology forward. And people have tried very hard to answer the question, for every dollar that you spend on otherwise useless basic research, by how many dollars is the economy improved? And the, the answer is greater than one. Spending money on the Large Hadron Collider puts money ultimately into the economy. The most obvious example is a little thing called the World Wide Web, which was invented at CERN by particle physicists sharing data. So these sort of unanticipated spin-offs are an immediate technological benefit, are not at all what the particle physicists are interested in. They just want to know how the Higgs boson behaves. Yes? Uh, the LHC gives you a controlled uh, environment to run your experiment. What is the possibility of uh, uh, detecting the same things in cosmic rays, uh, <coughs> the decay pattern of the Higgs boson? Right. Uh, cosmic rays are these very energetic particles that are hitting the Earth's atmosphere. Their energies are much higher than what we have in the LHC. But remember, one zeptosecond. <laughs> the Higgs boson decays instantly into other particles. And the other relevant number is the luminosity. That is to say, the rate at which these events happen. So the cosmic rays are at much higher energies than the LHC, but at a much, much, much lower rate. These ultra-high energy events are very, very rare. And you need to make truly, you know, trillions of collisions before you made enough Higgs bosons to detect them in a statistically significant way. So as far as anyone has yet conceived, cosmic rays are utterly useless for searching for Higgs bosons. Now that's not to say we won't discover some other new physics in cosmic rays. So there's the Pierre Auger Observatory in South America, which is observing the decay patterns from ultra high energy cosmic rays, trying to find new physics. But it's so messy and out of control that uh, so far we haven't put our fingers on anything new yet. Fingers are crossed, but it's not the most, not certainly not the way to, to look at the Higgs boson in particular. Do you have any ideas on the origin of mass? Would you concur with Frank Wurzek? And if not, why not? Well, so the question of the origin of mass, I, I tried to be careful in my talk that the Higgs boson gives mass to electrons and quarks and so forth. Uh, but most of your mass and my mass does not come from electrons and quarks. The quarks that are inside your protons and neutrons are only 1% of the total mass of your protons and neutrons. And a proton is 2,000 times the mass of the electron. Most of your mass comes from protons and neutrons. But it's not the elementary particles inside them that are giving the mass, it's the binding energy, it's the energy of the strong interactions that are keeping those quarks inside those protons. So most of your mass, my mass, the Earth, the Sun, etc., comes from the binding energy of the strong interactions, not from the Higgs field. But this is something that happily we understand very, very well. Okay, we have time for one last question. One so very, I, very good question. I'll be question. cheeky and ask it myself. All right. 
Pressure's um, on. With so many fields that are taken to be fundamental, that looks kind of messy to me. Where do you stand on trying to reduce them to something more fundamental, a single, unique kind of law or field? Well, that, so that's a very good question. And my uh, answer is kind of radical in the sense that I don't think that ultimately we will believe the world is made of fields. Right now, our best understanding of the tangible world around us is in terms of quantum field theory. But just like particle physics is an approximation to quantum field theory, I think that quantum field theory is going to be an approximation to something else. And there's very strong reasons to believe that's true from gravity, from black holes, Hawking uh, entropy, and things like that. That ultimately physics is not local, is not like Laplace envisioned it, that we have to do better. Uh, so I think that the ultimate version of reality is just going to be a wave function in Hilbert space. We have a very big uh, Hilbert space. There's a law of evolution in that Hilbert space. And everything else is emergent on top of that. And the, the job of, of physicists will be to figure out what is the evolution law and how do you match that onto an individual set of fields, which will only be appropriate in certain circumstances, not in other ones, because it's not the fields that are truly fundamental. Okay. Thank you for an excellent talk, Sean. Thank you.